Heads up before we begin. This podcast is explicit in every way. We roll in three, two, one. Well, let's begin. I'm uh, ready. Thank you very much, by the way. For sure. Governor John Bell Edwards, my name is D1. It's a pleasure to meet you. Uh, this is the second time. I'm sitting in the governor's mansion in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, listening in on an interview between Louisiana Governor John Bell Edwards and New Orleans rapper D1. It's days before a runoff election between the Democratic incumbent John Bell Edwards and his Republican challenger, which Edwards will go on to win with 95% support from black voters. When you speak about criminal justice reform, that's something where unfortunately everyone in this room right now probably has a personal loved one who's locked up or who has been locked Mm -hmm. up. And we still love them because we know that despite any mistake they have made, or a lot of people have been wrongfully convicted, as we know, despite that, they still deserve a second chance, you know, in this world oftentimes. Now, the room that we're sitting in inside this governor's mansion gets straight out to Annabellum South. I'm talking velvet drapes, crystal chandeliers. There's even hand-printed French wallpaper. D1, on the other hand, He's repping young, black New Orleans to the fullest. From the red belly animals on his feet to the bandana wrapped around his locks. He broke the symbolism behind his outfit down to me right before he interviewed the governor. I have a camouflage rag tied around my head right now. We call it a soldier rag in New Orleans. Why? Because growing up, all of the New Orleans rappers, even No Limit Records, they stress camouflage so much that just this whole idea of being a soldier, you know what I mean, and life being like a war, it just held... An abnormal amount of weight, you know, if you you were a young black kid growing up in New Orleans. This was the first time that the state's governor has sat down with somebody from the hip-hop community for an interview. I mean, as far as I know, it might have been the first time a governor anywhere sat down with a rapper. It was a pretty big deal. When we talk about criminal justice, uh... What, what have you been able to accomplish that you're proud yeah. of? And, and moving forward, what would, what would continue to give those inmates hope that you know, they, they still have a shot at living a great life? Well, first of all, for decades, Louisiana had the nation's highest incarceration. Now, Dee's doing this because he cares about the issues, but also because he's got a good friend who's already spent two decades in prison. And a pardon from the governor could be one of his last chances to clear his name, a name Dee never mentions during their half-hour interview. That's because he's playing the long game. I appreciate your time, sir. Thank you so much. God bless you. God bless you. Mm -hmm. And Dee's friend who's behind bars? That's the rapper Mac Phipps. The one-time child prodigy turned rising star on No Limit Records in the 1990s. Back then, No Limit was one of the most successful independent record labels in the game. They had that aggressive, brash, southern gangster rap on lock. And Dee who was about a decade younger than Mac Phipps. He was probably Mac's biggest fan growing up. You know, so I remember listening to this. For real, this dude reminded me of a New Orleans version of Nas, but I could relate to what he was saying so much more. You know, and and I and I just I get it. I got goosebumps listening to it right now, bro. I wish I could show y'all. Literally, I got goosebumps on my arms. In 2001. Mac was convicted in a nightclub shooting that left one man dead. By the time he and Dee met, Mac had already served almost a decade on a 30-year sentence. How often do y'all talk? Pretty much every day. Yeah? Literally seven days a week. Always calling. 
always. I only feel bad about missing two people's calls on this earth, Mac and my grandma. We just have this this friendship that's, uh, it's just pure, bro. It's just pure. I don't have a blood brother, you know. That's the closest thing I've ever felt to. That's what I would hope that having a brother feels like, you know. You really feel like it's part of your, your mission and maybe even like your God-given purpose to be playing this role? 100%, 100% bro. 100%. This is part of my mission. This is part of my purpose in life. Yeah. Let's get him home ASAP at this point. Like, come on, it's been long enough. D1 is just part of a growing chorus of friends, activists, musicians, even journalists and independent investigators who believe that Mac is innocent and that the authorities used his hip-hop image to charge him with murder. Word on the street has always been, man, that dude didn't do that at all. This killing, it took place in an era when being a rapper was enough to make you guilty by association. In No Limit, it wasn't just a label full of rappers. In the late 90s, it was a label full of some of the biggest rappers on the planet. Master P's tank was closing in on 75 million records sold, and Mac... Mac was positioned as the label's next big thing. But nothing big comes easy in the black belt of the American South, especially when white fans are buying 75% of rap records and white parents can't stand it. If you were a racist white person at the time, this was your worst nightmare. Young, black, filthy rich, cocky, flashy, and in your subdivisions, in your face with it. It was a a clashing of cultures back then. McKinley Phipps Jr. was born and raised in New Orleans. But the crime Mac was accused of, it happened in St. Tammany Parish. And that's where things get kind of interesting. Just across the lake from New Orleans, so-called St. Slamany is known for its notoriously high incarceration rate. We're going to take a look at Louisiana's tough-on-crime mentality in its most insidious form. If you're going to walk the streets of St. Tammany Parish with dreadlocks and chiwi hairstyles, then you can expect to be getting a visit from a sheriff's deputy. I'm Rodney Carmichael. I'm Sydney Madden. From NPR Music, this is Louder Than a Riot. Where we chase the collision of rhyme and punishment in America. Now, over the next three episodes, we're going to tell the story of Mac Phipps, one of No Limit's fallen soldiers who paid a high price for his lyrical gift. Race, corruption, and rap on trial. Stay with us. Support for NPR and the following message come from Quantacy and Associates, a full-service creative agency and studio helping brands grow by pushing culture in the right direction while introducing a new era of thinking. With a business model designed to help companies excel, they specialize in melding the worlds of marketing, content, technology, and influence. Quantacy works with brands of all sizes, ranging from Fortune 100 clients, public figures, and small businesses. Find out more at Quantacy.com. This message comes from NPR sponsor, WeTransfer. Are you perfectly happy with the way things are right now? Are there any doubts you have about the world as is? If so, perhaps they deserve your full attention. Perhaps they could even change things for the better. WeTransfer's set of tools is made for just such an endeavor. 
by helping you collect, sketch, present, and share the ideas that all started with doubts. Meet, paste, paper, and collect by WeTransfer. Go to toolstomoveideas.com to learn more. I need wheels. I need wheels. In 1990, Mac, a little Mac as he was known back then, was desperate, about as desperate as any 12-year-old can be. This was the era of the rap ballad, and Lil Mac, he was confessing his desires, not for puppy love, but for a car. So he wouldn't have to rely on his parents to drive him around town to see all his girlfriends. The song was called I Need Wheels. Think LL Cool J's I Need Love, but coming from a kid who wasn't even old enough to drive yet. So I can ask my dad, I went and asked him, but I don't know why he told me no. I jumped, broke down and cried, frustrated. It was off the self-titled album, Lil Mac, The Lyrical Midget. What did you think about all, all the girlfriends he was talking about in the song? <laughs> <laughs> and uh, he didn't have any girl. It was a lot of little girls liked him, but he was, <laughs> that was part of the song. He didn't have any girlfriends, not that young. <laughs> <laughs> That's Sheila Phipps, Mac's mom. And she laughs about it now, but back then, man, dude was transcending. Two years before Criss Cross jumped to the top of the charts, Mac had juvenile raps like Young and Embarrassed and Lil Mac be clubbing, expressing all his little preteen woes. He'd hit it big at a young age, winning a citywide talent show. And the prize was $500 cash, and a record deal with Yo Records. That's the record label that sparked the careers of two other New Orleans local legends in the making, rapper Gregory D and DJ Manny Fresh, who would go on to produce Mac's first album. Now that was before he became the in-house producer behind Cash Money's stars like Lil Wayne, Juvenile, and the rest of the Hot Boys. As Yo Records' newest signee, Mac already had a rep for being a gifted MC. He was basically a hip-hop prodigy. He was always, like, the best freestyler in the city. He had to be about, what, let's say about 10, 11, 12 years old, somewhere in that range. And they would have older guys, like, 18, always come get him to go challenge somebody else. That's one of Mac's brothers, Chad. I was the little brother, and of course, for all my life, I've always been the little brother, <laughs> which used to agitate me when I was a kid, for obvious reasons. Unfortunately for me, my brother was pretty good in just about anything he did. Basketball, video games, football. But my brother was always good in all of it. It was almost effortless. Yeah, especially when it came to rapping. He would chew them up. And there's been a few times where he would battle a guy and destroy him. And then I would see that guy battle somebody else, quoting his lyrics. <laughs> Are you serious? I am dead serious. It happened at least two or three times where I'm like, wow, this dude actually took my brother's lyrics from his rap battle uh -huh. and now using it on somebody else. <laughs> Mac came up in New Orleans in the 80s and 90s, back when the Big Easy was the murder capital of America. He came from a working class family. His father was a Vietnam vet who worked at the VA hospital, while Mac's mom, who was a visual artist, stayed at home raising the family. But they still struggled financially, and they moved around a lot. We were from apartment to apartment to apartment to apartment. He was Mac's father, McKinley Sr. We lived in certain neighborhoods where we stayed on every block in that neighborhood. You know, if you say General Taylor Street, 
We stayed on 31, 32, and 3300 block of General Taylor, you know, because it was like a constant struggle. Even though Mac was becoming a young rap phenom in the city, his parents were strict at home. Slacking in school was definitely not an option. Like I told him, I said, as long as you are maintaining your, your grades in school and you're not doing anything destructive, you can continue with the rap music. The first time I remember seeing Mac, it's funny because at the time, his songs were horrible. Young and embarrassed. That's the name of the game. Young and embarrassed. When you're young, you're shame. <laughs> That's one of Mac's teenage friends, respected New Orleans DJ and producer, Raj Smooth. When we was in junior high school, like, when we first started making our little songs, we had, like, a couple of diss records toward him. You know, we didn't know him, but it was just like, man, this is, this is horrible. Like, this is whack. Like, what are you doing? What are you talking about? But as Mac matured, so did his flow. And Rod remembers running into Mac at a local record store one day. Come to find out, Mac was spitting some heat. My homie Thomas, who actually was the one that had wrote the raps that was dissing Mac, talking about he need wheels and all that other stuff, he, like, elbowed me. He was like, yo, man, you know who that is? I'm like, who's that? He's like, man, that's Mac. I'm like, what? You know what I'm saying? Because, like, Mac was, like, flowing. Like, where was this dude at? As a rapper, your flow and your cadence is, like, everything. That's what sets you apart. You know, like, the way that you're able to ride a beat. And Mac's rhythm and his flow, that's what would always, like, grab you. It don't really matter what he talking about. It's just the way that he hits the beat. The universal, controversial, multiversal. See you on my tennis shoe commercial, nigga. It don't quit, nigga. They quickly switched from competitors to crew. And even though this was the Deep South, man, these cats were some East Coast heads. <laughs> exactly. They were on some lyrical miracle stuff, you know? We were the guys that was listening to Tribe Called Quest and Public Enemy and, you know, we had the little sock hats and the cross colors and all that stuff. <laughs> like, you know, so like, you know, we, we were hardcore, you know, brand Nubian and yeah. like that's what we were listening to. But by the early 90s in New Orleans, and that was kind of going against the grain a little bit. Things were starting to switch up. But these cats, man, they were still married to that boom bap. We were the backpackers. Like, we were the anti-what's popping right now. Like, my freshman year in high school was when Where They At came out, and that kind of put Bounce on the map. Bounce. The New Orleans bread sound that gave the city its own hip-hop identity was definitely on the rise. When Bounce first hit, and it was all about that call and response and the party and the dancing. That's when New Orleans like found its niche. By the mid 1990s, 95 or so, if you ain't bouncing, you're in trouble. That's Charlie Braxton. I am a music historian and a music journalist focusing primarily on uh, Southern hip hop. Yeah, Charlie's as iconic as the hip hop he's covered. I mean, he's the same cat who wrote the first five mic review for a Southern rap album in the Source magazine back in the day. Shout out to Outkast. Now, Charlie, he's going to give us a little bounce music 101. But first, we got to go back, way back, to enslavement and the birthplace of American music, the Congo Square. The French believed that the slaves could practice their own music 
practice their own religion, which is why New Orleans is one of the more Africanized cities in the United States. And because they were able to retain those African rhythms, those rhythms eventually transferred into jazz drumming, R&B drumming, and eventually found its way into hip-hop. Bounce music is a very Africanized, rhythmic music. It takes samples from the showboys' drag rap. Drag rap, or as it's also known, Trigger Man, dropped in the mid-80s. Now, oddly enough, the cats behind this single, the showboys, they came from Queens. The group was almost as short-lived as the single up in New York. But when the song made its way down south, Man, that thing became a New Orleans staple. The break that creates the, the breakdown on Trigger Man, when you listen to it, it's that rhythm. That rhythm is closely akin to the rhythm that people in New Orleans are accustomed to. And then when you add the call and response, which of course is an African thing, and then you add the chance again, an African and Native American thing. You get bounce. And then when you take brothers like DJ Jimmy and DJ Jubilee. Who grew up with New Orleans music. Grew up listening to the second line beats. It's in their DNA. They knew exactly how important that record was. The DJ going back to back, you know, with the break beat on Trigger Man, which was like one of the greatest songs that ever touched New Orleans. I think there was one like high school dance. I think they played Trigger Man like seven times and we never got tired of it. Now, as the streets and the clubs were bouncing, Raj and Mac, they were focusing on their beats and rhymes. Eventually, they would link up with a group of other cats on that same style. They branded themselves the Psycho Ward. Mac was kind of like New Orleans' version of Nas. His flow, the intelligence that he had behind his rhyme. You know what I'm saying? Like, it was very thoughtful. It was very profound. And, like, Mac was always, like, that dude. Like, every time, like, he had a verse on the song, like, you always knew, like, his verse was going to be everybody's favorite verse. Strong like cheap cologne. Michael said we not alone. I tap that ass like a phone. Then escort you home. Back streets I roam. Covers are blown. Niggas dig us. But ladies love the tone. I be in the zone. In your ears like a cell phone. Catch me between South Broad and Claiborne. I'm gone, nigga. The Psycho Wars started making major noise locally opening up for national acts touring through New Orleans. We in high school opening for the far side, like, like man, like, we, we popping. Yeah, and Mac, man, Mac was becoming the most valuable player. Yeah, he had the bars, the stage presence, and the type of verbal agility to slaughter you on the mic. That's how he earned the nickname, the Camouflage Assassin. In 96, he linked up with another member of the Psycho Ward named Storm. They formed this male-female duo, Mac and Storm, and dropped a single, Mad or Jealous. 
Me and Storm hooked up about 94. Got a click of psychos behind me, so everything is fine till he's fake ass. I'm from upstate ass. Yo, shit is real tight, so we gonna play your hate ass. Niggas wanna be down like that. Mac being kind of like the the buzz dude around town. Like everybody was like, yeah, Mac is, Mac is that guy. Indeed, Mac was buzzing around town. But he was starting to reach his limit locally. Luckily for Mac, there was another movement rising in New Orleans that seemed to have no limits at all. And of course, we're talking about No Limit Records. Founded by Master P, the label was loud, brash, <laughs> thugged out. Before No Limit Records took off and became one of the biggest hip-hop labels of all time, it started out as a little record store in Richmond, California, owned by this guy. My name is Percy Miller, also known as Master P. Um, entrepreneur, businessman, entertainer, played professional basketball, and a father. Master P grew up in the same world as Mac, both natives of the Third Ward. But P's entrance into the rap game was totally different than Mac's. That's because it took a detour out west in order for P to find his way in. P took the street hustle he learned from New Orleans and mixed it all up with the independent game he got from the Bay Area in the early 90s. Yeah, and the hip-hop hustle, man, it was strong in the Bay at this time. I'm talking unsigned acts like E-40 flooding the streets all while major labels were fast asleep. Now, pretty soon, P, he got hip and made the switch from retailer to rapper. And eventually, he called on his brothers to join the family business out west. And two of them did. His youngest brother, Rashawn Miller, chose to go by the name Silk the Shocker. And Corey Miller... He settled on C-Murder. Yeah, but even then, that name, it did not sit well with P. I said, man, you do that, that's going to come back at you. He's like, man, I could name myself. I'm not doing nothing wrong, but I said, I don't think you should do that. But there was another Miller brother who decided not to move out west. And in the end, it cost him his life. In 1990, Kevin Miller was murdered in New Orleans. He was knee-deep in the streets, and he got caught up. The pain from that loss ended up inspiring Pete and his other brothers to go hard on No Limit Records. Yeah, but the dots didn't quite connect at first. I mean, they were trying to do West Coast G music, but these G's, they weren't from the West. It wasn't happening because the way I looked, I had gold teeth, dreads. Now everybody in the Bay looked like that. But at the time, I was an eyeball. Yeah, Pete hadn't figured out how to translate that Southern swag just yet. But then one night in Houston, Texas, he has an encounter that changes everything. He's at a nightclub when he spots a cat dressed flyer than any rapper he's ever seen. He had a little mink coat on and had a Mercedes Benz, the jewelry. I'm like, what do this dude do? <laughs> you know? And so he told me, he was like, man, I say, it's a rap company. You rap? He said, no, I own a company. That really impressed me. That guy he was talking to was Southern rap impresario Jay Prince, founder of Rap-A-Lot Records, home to Scarface and the Ghetto Boys. He was the guy I looked up to because I said, it's a black man that owned the company. I thought it was somebody else. You know, because that was big for us back then. The best piece of advice that I got from him was, you have to go for what you want out of life. 
can't sit around. You got to do it yourself if you really want. And yeah, that bit of inspiration gave Master P an epiphany. If Jay Prince could do it down south, he could too. If I take this home and I grab the best talent, the Mere X, the Soldier Slim, the Mysticals, the Fiends, man, there's no way we're going to be stopped. When No Limit came on the scene, they were the underdog that nobody saw coming. Nobody saw Master P coming. Nobody. Here's Charlie Braxton again. When P first came to New Orleans, he was on some West Coast, you know, uh, NWA type stuff. So people are like, oh, this guy, he's not even worth paying attention to. Keep in mind, if you're not bouncing, <laughs> you're going to have a hard time getting a mass audience. And it would have been a challenge to anybody but Master P. But see, this cat knew how to capitalize on being different. When I came back, I started working on Ice Cream Man album. And I knew that this was unique. It was different. Ice Cream Man truck, he was his own boss. He was independent. He'll come through. Everybody loved him in the hood. Everybody wanted to be the Ice Cream Man. Yeah, the Ice Cream Man, man, that was something special. You know, it was like a magical metaphor for street hustling wrapped in a clever package. On the strength of Ice Cream Man, P signed a sweet distribution deal with Priority Records. And he kept his independence. Yup, and retained total ownership of his masters. I felt in my mind that nobody's gonna be bigger than me because I'm gonna control what I have. And with Beats by the Pound, the New Orleans production unit he had, he even had his own sound. Here's the thing that you really have to understand about not just the rise of No Limit, but the rise of the South. The South has the most black people who are buying records. We were buying records in the South. We weren't buying mixtapes. We were buying records. And once we started buying those records, we started to dictate to the market. Man, he flooded the market. The pen and pixel cover art, the full page ads in the Source magazine, the nonstop release schedule, it felt like No Limit was everywhere. If you were around during the No Limit days and you were in the hood, you knew about how cats were standing in line at 12 o'clock midnight waiting for that new No Limit. I remember a record executive called me out. How is he selling these records? How is he doing it? Is it the art? Is it the, the, the ads that are getting? What is it? But what they didn't understand is that P understood the music business because keep in mind, this is at a time when physical copies are being moved. These aren't streams. These are actually people going to the store, putting down their $15 to $20 to buy a record. And man, everybody was buying into No Limit. P and his squad of artists and producers were churning out album after album, week after week. No Limit Records pumped out nearly two dozen albums in a single year. Ten of those albums went platinum. Eleven went gold. And with the crazy release schedule, they totally broke the mold and set a new industry standard. When I wrote uh, the first story on P and I talked about how paid he was and how much money he was making, reporters actually called me, come on, man, that dude don't know no major label. There's no way he could be making that kind of money. Let's do the math. As an independent, P makes anywhere from 6 to $8 a CD. If you're on a major, if you're lucky, 
you get 12 cents a CD. And that's only if you reach that platinum level. Most artists, if they're lucky, get eight cents a CD. I said, the man's paid. Say the only way I could show my success if I create other millionaires with people that look like me, come from the hood like me. I, I said, the more millionaires I create, the most successful I would be. That man said he was making millionaires, plural. Mm-hmm. And his next signee was in prime position to blow up too. This message comes from NPR sponsor, BetterHelp, a truly affordable online counseling service. Fill out a questionnaire online and get matched with a licensed counselor best suited to your mental health needs. Whether it's depression, anxiety, or trauma, BetterHelp will help you overcome what stands in the way of your happiness. Learn more at BetterHelp.com and get 10% off your first month with promo code LOUDER. BetterHelp. Get help anytime, anywhere. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Marguerite Casey Foundation, creating greater freedom for changemakers to create a truly representative economy. Marguerite Casey Foundation believes working people and their families should have the power to shape our institutions, our democracy, and our economy. Shifting power, powering freedom. Learn more about the foundation at www.caseygrants.org and connect with the foundation on Twitter at Casey Grants and on Facebook. The past is never past, and every headline has a history. I'm Ramtin Arablouei. I'm Randa Abdel Fattah, and we're the hosts of Throughline, NPR's history podcast. Each week, we go back in time to better understand the present, bringing lesser-known stories and perspectives to the surface. Subscribe and listen to Throughline from NPR. While Master P was busy becoming a mogul, Mac was on his independent grind. But Mac was ready to level up. Yeah, and in the summer of 96, Mac attended a radio conference in New Orleans that attracted some of hip-hop's biggest record labels. He caught the attention of Def Jam's Kevin Lyles at this event. But when they met, Kevin told Mac he'd have to move to New York if he wanted to sign with Def Jam. Now, Mac couldn't see leaving the soil and his family behind just yet. But then, walking out of that meeting with Kevin, Mac ran into some no-limit artists who invited him up to their label's after-party. That's where he met the man who would change his life. Again, Mac was that dude, so P had a conversation with him, and the next thing we know, Mac getting signed to No Limit. Even though he wasn't one of the marquee artists yet, Mac had presence, man. Charlie Braxton still remembers the first impression Mac made on him at No Limit Studios shortly after signing with the label. I was there to do a cover story for The Source on Master P. And Mac was there clowning everybody, talking to people. And I thought to myself, wow, this guy's a newcomer. But then when I started digging into his history, I realized, oh, he's not a newcomer. He's been in New Orleans and doing his thing for quite a while. With the signing of Mac, P added an undeniable lyricist to his arsenal. So like, you know, here you had Master P and you had Fiend and you had Mia X and you had Mystical and all of these cats that were the top tier artists came together now you had like the dream team. You know what I'm saying? Like Master P like drafted everybody. You know what I'm saying? You had Mac. You know what I'm saying? Mac got drafted. So like to be a part of that movement and be on No Limit, that's kind of like what everybody wanted to do. Uh, not everybody. Remember Mac and Psycho Ward. This was a lyrical crew inspired by East Coast Golden Era MCs. 
And even though they were riding for Mac, they didn't want to see him dumb it down just to come up. No Limit was really kind of doing like, you know, just New Orleans gangster music. It was a bit of an odd peg for Mac. Mac was dope enough where he could do whatever, but, you know, a, a lot of the intellectual stuff in, in the, you know, the, the, the deep multi-tiered level of creativity and lyricism that he was able to do, he kind of had to pull a lot of that back. You know what I'm saying? Because, like, he had to represent for the tank like he was a soldier now. Yeah, now that he was a soldier, Mac leaned all the way into one of his earlier aliases, the Camouflage Assassin. He titled his first album Shell Shock, and one of his first singles, Murder, Murder, Kill, Kill. was talking about murder murder kill kill like dude like what you doing for us that you know like really kind of like came up with him and knew him on the creative side the potential that he had and, and what he could have done it was just it was just disappointing we understood it's like you know you kind of have to compromise and you have to do what you need to do to get your shot. You know, somebody comes and say, man, look, you know, this has been your dream since you could talk of being a rap star and having a record deal. And now you have an opportunity to be on BET and MTV and be heard worldwide. I mean, what do you do? I remember the, the first album he came out with, he did not want me to hear it. So he let me, he said, mine's a lot of cursing in there because, you know, he don't like to curse in front of me. I'm like, well, let me hear it anyway, you know. So I heard it. I liked it. You know, I knew it was a lot of, it was a little raunchy. I looked at him like, okay. I knew it was all about, you know, him wanting to get paid and help his family out of uh, the struggles that we were having. Regardless of the image he had to take on, this was Mac's chance to really get put on. So it was worth the cost. When Shellshock dropped in 1998, it broke the top 20 on the Billboard album charts. Meanwhile, P was paying the cost to be the boss. Because when you start making that kind of money he was making as the top dog and No Limit, man, people are going to start looking at you, especially if you're young, black, and flashy. So P decided to pick up shop and move to No Limit headquarters to Baton Rouge. I still wanted to be home, but I don't want to be right in the heart of it. So for me going to Baton Rouge, it's a lot more laid back. I had relatives out there. And when I go to visit Baton Rouge, and when I found the country club, I say, this is where I want to live at. You know, this is where I want to stay at. The neighborhood was incredible. It was a a prestige neighborhood, but they didn't have no African-Americans ever lived there. (laughs) All right, so picture this. Master P, mouth full of shiny gold teeth, pulling up to an all-white country club with his bags ready to move in. You best believe they didn't want P there. (laughs) So he had to think outside the box. Did you have a real estate agent at the time? No, I had people that worked for me that wasn't of my color. Ah, okay. (laughs) That's how I got in there. So I had my guy go in there and do all the application and buy the houses. So you got to outthink them. So I'm the first African-American person to purchase a house in Louisiana Country Club. And it went crazy. It was 
hit every magazine, every news stand. Yeah, P had come a long way from the Calio, one of the most violent housing projects in the nation. Mm. And as soon as folks got wind of what he was doing, they tried to stop him. This was the first clue that this move could come back to haunt No Limit. So the guy said he was going to stop my loan. Say, well, we're going to stop this loan. And the lady in the bank said, I got one thing to tell you, boss. He paid cash for the house. So they couldn't stop. So they only, they stopped me from playing golf. That was the only thing I couldn't do, play golf. Because I, I brought six houses back there at the time. Yeah, you heard right. Six houses, all filled up with No Limit artists. From Snoop Dogg to see murder and on and on. They just was shocked. They didn't understand how a young person like me could afford to be in a neighborhood like that, especially be black and have just as much as they have or more. Man, Mac was right on P's tail. He moved his family to Baton Rouge, too. Different neighborhood, but definitely a long way from the hood. Here's Mac's mom again. He had um, gotten a house and a, and two nice cars, and he moved the family into his home, and it it really changed. Mac was on the road so much with no limit, so we didn't really see him a lot. So everything changed. It, it gotten a lot better. It was it was pretty good, you know, for a while. Here's what you have to understand about Baton Rouge or Louisiana in general. When most people think of Louisiana, the first thing they think of is New Orleans. And with New Orleans, they think of a multicultural city. They think of Mardi Gras. They think of the French Quarter. They think of all of these wonderful things that most people know. Because that is, in essence, New Orleans. It's a tourist city. But then there's the rest of Louisiana. Baton Rouge is not New Orleans. They're not used to seeing young black men with a lot of money living in areas reserved for wealthy white people, and they're not trying to fit in. That makes them nervous. Keep this in mind. Rap music is becoming popular with their children and their grandchildren. So now you've got authentic rap stars, people that they see on MTV and BET Raps and all these other stores living in their neighborhood, living next door to their daughters and their sons. Yeah, and P has some pretty bougie neighbors. Or should I say bourgeois? P lived next door to the former governor of Louisiana. He could look outside of his backyard and look into the backyard of the governor. That used to tickle P to death. That used to really tickle him to death. Yeah, man. P, he really sent a message when he moved into that neighborhood. But, you know, you start kicking up all that dust and you're going to have eyes on you. I was well aware of the fact that they weren't welcome in that part of Baton Rouge. And I was well aware of the fact that the police who take their orders from the ruling class were probably told, do what you can to make them feel uncomfortable and maybe they'll go back to New Orleans where they came from. The irony is that P moved his whole operation to Baton Rouge to keep his artist out of trouble. And lo and behold, Mac wound up getting in some trouble.
With civil unrest, the pandemic, and the economic crisis, you want to know what's happening right when you wake up. And that's why there is Up First, the news you need in about 10 minutes from NPR News. Listen every day. This call is subject to recording and monitoring. This is a call from an offender at a Louisiana Department of Corrections facility. Hello. Hey, Mac. How's it going? I'm chilling. What's up? That's Mac Phipps, speaking from Elaine Hunt Correctional Center. These recordings are from interviews that documentary filmmaker Michael Shaheen and crime reporter David Lohr conducted with Mac in 2015 and 2016. For more than a year, we tried to get an interview with Mac ourselves, but all our requests were repeatedly denied by the warden with no explanation. So these prison recordings are really the only way we get to hear from Mac directly. It's real easy to forget how big of a deal Mac was becoming before everything went bad. He was even featured on one of No Limit's biggest hits, Wobble Wobble, by the 504 Boys, the third biggest rap single of the year 2000. And at this point, Mac, and he's toured the world with No Limit, sold out shows and performed in front of thousands of fans. No Limit brand was so big that you kind of just, there had so much going on. It was constant work. Like, it was real work. All day we were just, it was busy, you know, we were recording, we were going here, we were performing here, we were flying here, we were doing videos, we were doing movies. It was like you never really got a moment to be like, yo, uh, man, I've really made it. Mac had been with No Limit for a couple of years, but as time moved on, he was starting to feel like he was ready to leave the label. He was kind of growing tired of the No Limit style that he had to cater to. So I just felt that it was about that time for me to branch out. I felt I had learned enough from watching P and watching C. And I uh, watch the guys who are a, bit old, a little bit older than me do what they do. And I felt like I learned enough to branch out on my own. He learned enough to branch out on his own, he says. Now, as part of transitioning out of No Limit, Max started doing solo shows around the country. He even started his own family-run entertainment company called Camouflage Entertainment. His dad would act as manager and his mom would take tickets at the door. His brother Chad would occasionally run security. And on the night of February 20th, 2000, Mac and his family, they were getting ready to do another one of these shows. We did a few shows at the club, Mercedes, and my son actually didn't want to. That's Mac's dad, McKinley Sr., recalling the night. He slept late. It's like he had an omen that probably something bad was going to happen. I just wasn't feeling it that night. It was just weird. It's hard to even pinpoint what my exact feeling was, but I just know I wasn't feeling it that night. That particular night, Mac didn't want to do it. He was like, man, I'm tired. I don't feel like doing this. I don't like this place. But, you know, I was like, you know, this is the last night. Because after that night, I had already booked a six-month tour. I was just letting him know, say, this is our last night because I don't like this place either. I just want to get this over with so that we can go on tour. And our tour started the next day. Yeah, his brother Chad had a weird feeling too, partly because the club was located in St. Tammany Parish, 
in the small town of Slide Hill, just across the lake from where Matt grew up. But St. Tammany, it felt like a whole nother world. When you're brown, you're not welcome. <laughs> it's a sort of racist area. You get stopped a lot and uh, harassed a lot in that area. There's a lot of places in Louisiana where you just don't go. And that's one of them places where I would have never have went had we not had that show. Yeah, and just in case you didn't hear that, that was Max saying it was just understood when he was growing up that the KKK was in St. Tammany. When the, the promoter asked me to come out there and perform, when my mom introduced me to the guy, the first thing I told him was, they got black people in Slidell. They got black people in Slidell? Just for protection, Mac was packing that night. It was just like any other run-down, hole-in-the-wall club, which I don't like run-down, hole-in-the-wall clubs. Because usually they don't have great security and all that stuff. And that's what it was. We had a lot of people from our neighborhood and uh, a few of my cousins and stuff was with us. My parents was with us. When Mac finally arrived, he was going back and forth about even performing. He really just wasn't feeling it. And then the crowd started getting a little rowdy. It was getting later in the night. And um, I'm from New Orleans. And, you know, and, and, and where I'm from... You don't step on people's toes and fall into people and do all of that crazy wild stuff because it can result in fight or worse. I had another guy with me who was uh, usually running security. And um, I could hear him mumbling or saying to me, like, man, if they come over here with that, I'm going to knock them out. And I'm thinking to myself, you know what? Here we go with this New Orleans stuff because that's, that's what I'm thinking. I remember the fight broke out on the dance floor. I remember going toward, like, my brother at some point saw me in the middle of this ruckus that looked like it was about to happen. So he started walking up and I can see him walking up over my shoulder. Now I'm still holding off two guys from fighting each other <laughs> as my brother's walking up over my shoulder to see what was going on. And the next thing you know, it was like a pow. Keep in mind that the music was real loud. So I heard what sounded like a little, like a loud pop, right? And I guess part of my brain was trying to process whether this pop was on the song or whether it was from a gunshot. But to take precautionary measures, I got low and looked around. At this point, Chad looks up and sees what several other people saw. Mac holding a gun. He just kind of pulled it out of his waist and had it pointed at the ceiling, and he was kind of ducking because he's thinking somebody's shooting. People started running toward the exit. And once people start running toward the exit, I was like, all right, that must have been a gunshot. Everybody started breaking to the exits. And when I noticed people running, I knew that this was a damn gunshot. This wasn't one of those uh, no-limit gunshots into the beat that, that we put on our beats and stuff like that. So it's like the party's broken up now. We all getting out of here. When I left out of the club... I realized my brother was not behind me because he went back in to get my parents and them who was in the front. My attention, I guess, was locked on one thing. When I ran toward the front door, I remember yelling, man, where my mom at? Asking one of my friends, where my mom at, man? Like, where's my mama? Because she was at the front door and I didn't see her. And I remember yelling that. Biggest mistake I made was running toward the front door with a gun in my hand. Mac ends up finding his brother and his parents. And on the way out, McKinley Sr. notices a man on the ground and a woman, Yulon James, standing over him. 
Yulon was dating the club promoter, and she was also a first-year nursing student, so she started administering CPR right there on the spot. She was like uh, pulling the shirt around and everything, checking him to see where he was shot at or whatever, or what was wrong with him. And I asked her, asked her I said, well, is he okay? And she was saying, well, he okay. Uh, he just got shot in the arm. Mac and his family pile into two cars and drive back home to Baton Rouge. Now, by the time they get home, it's in the wee hours of the morning. Then, that's when Mac gets a call from the St. Tammany detectives saying he's wanted for questioning in connection to the shooting at the club. Part of me knew that, you know what, I'm going to go down here, they're going to question me, they're going to want checks on my hand, and then they're going to let me go. That was my thought process. But I remember as I waited for the detectives to come to my house, I was sitting in my little brother's bedroom, and they were both asleep. And I was looking around, and I don't know where the thought came from, but it was just something came to my mind, a thought came to my mind that, you know what, I just wanted to look at everything in the house like as if I felt I was never going to see it again. Police arrived at Mac's house, and they were in full force. I had like four policemen, three with pistols, one with a shotgun, come run charging, running at me. Talking about, get on the ground, get on the ground, get on the ground. <clears throat> I didn't even have my shirt on. And it was cold. That was in February. It was cold. They all got shotguns to them. I'm, I'm not sure if the police going to shoot somebody or not. I have no idea why they got shotguns to them. The police is talking to everybody uh, and or disrespecting everybody the way they talk to people. So they were just doing their whole bully thing, I guess. I got down on the ground and did what they told me to do. And when they realized I wasn't armed or nothing... And they asked me, are you Mac? I said, no, I'm not Mac, but I'm Mac's father. What could I do for you? And, uh, well, Mac is wanted for murder. I told him, I said, it wasn't nobody dead when I left that because the guy wasn't dead. But the man Mac's dad saw laying on the ground, Baron Victor Jr., he had died from a single gunshot wound that went through his arm and struck his heart. They was asking, well, do we need to get a search warrant? I said, you can search all you want. We, we don't have nothing to hide. They searched the house. They, they, they took some guns. Now, remember Max Sr., he was a Vietnam vet and had guns left over from the war. They also took the weapon Max says he had at the concert that night. Police handcuffed Mac and took him to the sheriff's office where he was interrogated. And Mac, believing that all of this is going to get straightened out, he agreed to an interrogation with no lawyer. Me in my head, I'm thinking... Well, okay, they're going to take him down to question, and they'll probably, he'll probably be home in about five, ten minutes, you know, because we know he didn't do anything. So when he never came home, you know, I was like, well, what's going on? This is a tape statement being conducted by Detective James Franklin, St. Tammany Parish Sheriff's Office, and Detective Bobby Jude, St. Tammany Parish Sheriff's Office. The person to be interviewed is uh, McKinley, M-C-K-I-N-L-E-Y, J. P-H-I-P-P-S, he's a junior. Were you at Club Mercedes in flight overnight? Yes, sir. Okay, why were you there? I was there to perform. What kind of performing do you do? I rap. You're a rap singer? Yeah. It's just hours after the shooting, and the detective, he asked about Max Alias, the camouflage assassin. Don't you have a nickname, the camouflage assassin? Don't they call you? That's one of my rap names. The detectives grilled Mac about that evening. And they finally asked him what happened after the shot rang out. Max says he was looking for his mom. So I'm looking for my mom, and my mom started running outside 
and my heart grabbed my mom and I ran to him. That's exactly what I seen with my own eyes, you know. That's exactly what you're saying. Huh? That's exactly what I said. What would you say if I, told, if I told you we got witnesses to put a gun in your hand? Nah, a witness couldn't put a gun in my hand. A witness couldn't put a gun in my hand, Mac says. Now, this is where things get tricky for Mac. You need to tell us the truth, man. I'm telling you, I got two witnesses to put you with a gun in your hand. I mean, I, I'm really, I'm telling you the honest truth, you know, as I know it. The honest truth. I, when I was in that club, I did not have a gun. Did you shoot? No, no, sir. No, I know I didn't shoot. When I was in that club, I did not have a gun, Max says. Yup, he lied. Because even though the gun was registered to him, carrying a concealed weapon in a club, that's illegal in Louisiana. I didn't shoot nothing. Who did? That's what I don't know. I mean, I was... So everybody there picked you out of the crowd saying the superstar is the one shot. So everybody there picked you out of the crowd saying the superstar is the one who shot, the detective says. I guess I'm really the only name these people knew. Out of the crowd of people... You know, who was there, the only, only person they know is Mac. Oh, he's Mac. He's a rapper. We know him. We saw him running. He's Mac. You know what I'm saying? We saw him running. He's Mac. But now, nah, the detective wasn't having it. No, they didn't say they saw you running. They saw you with a damn gun in your hand, shooting people. Nah, I didn't shoot anybody, sir. I, 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 I can assure that. You know, I swear I didn't shoot anybody. Somebody got murdered, man. So everybody in Slidell is just going to bum rap you, huh? So everybody in Slidell is just going to bum rap you, huh? They're just going to pick, gonna you, pick out you out because you're a superstar and say Max the, the one that shot this dude. I guess so. Mac is arrested that night and sits in jail for a month before he even gets charged with a crime. Another month after that, he finally gets a bail hearing and his bail is denied. But then something happens. Something that could upend the whole case. Just days after Mac's arrest, a man named Thomas Williams walks into the St. Tammany Sheriff's Office with his pastor beside him. He has something to tell the police about that shooting. Something that's been keeping him up at night. A fight broke out to the left of me, and I went over to break up the fight. Thomas was part of Mac's entourage and was acting as a security guard at Club Mercedes that night. He sits down and starts to tell a story. And the guy was charging at me with a broken pill. And I was panicked and trembling as he was coming toward me. Now this audio is also pretty hard to understand, but as Thomas says, someone charged him with a beer bottle, and he panicked. And I was just standing there, I was panicking. And Nathan, I realized, I reached and I fired. I reacted and fired. And as he says fired, you can see Thomas Williams on the videotape motioning real fast with his hand, like he's pulling a gun and shooting at Baron Victor Jr. Thomas confesses to the crime. He says he, not Mac, shot Baron Victor Jr. Mac was in jail when he heard about this confession. So I was like, okay, I'm going home. It didn't work out that way. Mac thought he was getting out, but the police sent Thomas home. Mac stayed in jail. He never went home. I just thought that once these people saw the videotape confession, I was going home. Because I had never heard of anything in my life like that. Like, you know, someone confessing to something and a person still staying in prison. 
Next time on Louder Than a Riot, prosecutors try to convince the jury to ignore the confession, and they paint Mac as a real-life camouflage assassin. From NPR Music, this is Louder Than a Riot. This episode was written by Dustin DeSoto, me, Rodney Carmichael, and Sidney Madden. Michael May and Matt Ozug edited this one. It was produced by Dustin DeSoto and mixed by Josh Newell, with help from Adelina Lancianese and Sam Leeds. Senior supervising producers are Rachel Neal and Nigeri Eaton. And shout out to the bigwigs, Steve Nelson, Lauren Anki, and Anya Grunman. With original music by Casa Overall. Check him out, he's a dope artist. Our digital editor is Jacob Gans. Our fact checker is Jane Gilvin. A special thanks to everybody who lent their time and expertise on this one. Hit us up on Twitter. We're at Louder Than a Riot. Rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. And if you want to follow along with the music you heard in this episode, check out the Louder Than a Riot playlist on Apple Music and Spotify now. We'll update those each week. And if you want to email us, it's louder at npr.org.